0: Space Shuttle, this is Flight Safety. This podcast may contain at all themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Please keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle while in motion. You are clear for launch. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 4 of a fanfiction titled Sloppy Assassins by today's guest fanfiction writer, Jalapeno I. Popper. Severus checked his disillusionment and stepped away from the wall silently creeping closer. The moment he realized his mistake, it was too late. He couldn't smell the blood. He was upwind. Before Severus could back away again, Black lifted his sensitive canine nose and took a great sniff. Severus was frozen, rooted to the spot, as Black sized up his surroundings. The cold, dark eyes of a snarling, killer beast landed directly on him despite the disillusionment charm. And then Black scrunched up his muzzle, widened his stance, and shook. As spiral droplets of blood flew in every direction, Severus stepped back instinctively. Then he dropped his charm and held his wand ready to duel. In the two seconds it took, Black returned to human form, but he did not reach for his wand. Wiping his face, which only served to smear the blood, he snapped. What are you doing here, Snape? Glaring, he replied, making sure you finish the job. A low growl drifted across the alley, barely audible against the airflow. Black's eyes darted briefly to the dead man, and then his own clothes. His expression turned sour, as if he only just realized that he was covered in the blood of the man he killed with his bare teeth. Seeing that level of self-awareness and self-control returning... Severus relaxed his stance slightly and hissed. We should not linger. Black finally drew his wand, but he was turning away, back to Dolohov's body, which he transfigured into a rubbish sack. While the other man nonchalantly picked up the sack and strolled to a nearby dumpster, Severus tisked at the mess and waved his wand to vanish the blood on the stones. Sloppy, he muttered. Black slammed the bin shut, and Severus glanced up and down, looking to see if the ruckus had caused any attention yet. In the two seconds it took to be sure they were alone, Black was in his face, his wand at a threatening angle towards Severus's neck. What's it to you, anyway? It took every ounce of his self-control to stay calm so close to the other man. Don't be a moron, Black. Black. Severus rolled his eyes and, against his better judgment, said, If you don't have a better place to clean up, come with me. Black shrugged, eyes glinting with malicious mirth. Normally I just take a swim before I transform back. Severus might have shuddered if he hadn't spent decades suppressing the instinct. How many people had Black killed as his grim animagus? He might have attempted legitimacy to find out. But there was something a bit feral in Black's eyes that made him hold back. It was not exactly safe to go rooting around in an animal's mind. You, Black whispered. You're the other assassin. I knew it was someone with a dark mark. Severus blinked in surprise and then glanced around. Still alone, thank Merlin. We have to leave. "'Now!' Black jabbed his wand into Severus's throat. "'I should just take care of you now. "'When I'm through, nobody with a dark mark will be left.' "'Well, wasn't that interesting? "'They had roughly the same goal. "'Let me finish my list.' "'Baring his teeth, Black simply said, "'No.' "'Severus saw the twitch of the wrist that typically precedes a stunner and he ducked just in time. The flash of red light made sparks on the wall behind him, illuminating the alley. Pivoting away, Severus launched a whole series of curses, and Black narrowly evaded all of them. Heart pounding, Severus knew all this light and noise would bring unwanted attention, and he began watching for his moment to run. It came when Black transformed. As Severus spun on his heel to apparate away, the last thing he saw was a bloody, salivating jaw full of wickedly sharp teeth. To the north, south, east, and west four corners of the world, Greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Our special guest today is Jalapeno Eye Popper. She is a writer, a teacher, a mother, an audiophile, a foodie, and completely in love with Severus Snape. Hell, yes, on Jalapeno Eye Popper's AO3, you're going to find lots of Snape fic a few nonfiction original meta works and she's been a regular guest on the snapchat podcast jalapeno eye popper welcome to fanfic maverick how you doing
1: i'm great thanks y'all can call me hal that's a little bit easier than that whole mouthful of jalapeno eye popper every time <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes yes well thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today Hal. i really appreciate it we are talking about a pairing today that we have not covered yet. And I am actually really excited (laughs) about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's always fun when we have firsts, right? So you get to be the first to represent Snack. And we'll go into what Snack is here in a bit. But first, tell me all about your first introduction to fan fiction. How did you discover fan fiction for the first time? And do you remember, by chance, the very first one that you found?
1: Those are great questions. I kind of discovered fanfic in a couple of stages. First, I loved writing since the moment I could pick up a pen. So I was probably eight years old when I first wrote a fanfic, not realizing what it was. Um, so it was probably RPF, too, like a crush on a boy in my class or something like that. <laughs> uh, you know, the imaginary future we had and all of our many babies and whatever. So that that was probably my first fanfic ever that I, and I wrote it. And then it was a little later in the summer of 2000 and I was following the Harry Potter craze and I had just put down Goblet of Fire book four, which was released in like July of that year. And I was just sitting back stunned and I went on to my compact Presario. Um, It was the first ever compact Presario ever made. And hopped on my, like, 144 dial-up and went to a dogpile web search and typed in, what did Dumbledore send Snape to do?
0: Dun-dun-dun. Because he
1: had just <laughs> revealed his dark mark to the Minister for Magic, and then Dumbledore's like, you know what you have to do. And I'm like, but I don't know what he has to do. So <laughs> then... Yeah. Was
0: that not the worst cliffhanger?
1: I mean, I love a cliffhanger, but that was a crazy cliffhanger. <laughs> well,
0: especially for those of us who are in love with Severus Snape, I knew pretty early on that I loved him, too. Yeah, And so the whole Dark Mark thing, when that came up in the books, I was like, oh, this is juicy and I love it. But I'm with you. Not knowing where he went was torture. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And then we had to wait for three years. For the next installment. Right. <laughs> so we called that the three year summer, and I spent the three year summer reading everything. At the time we didn't call it meta, it was just fan essays or theories, um, and and rumors about what we thought was going to happen. We were hanging on every word that Rowling said ever and trying to figure out what that meant for the series. And so I got real deep into fandom at that point and started finding a lot of fanfic and kind of dabbling in writing it myself. I had a different pen name at the time. And like, it's probably for the best that that pen name is gone. <laughs> so, but yeah, that, that was the first, like, I knew it was fanfic and I knew what I was looking at. So that was probably six or seven years after I had first written and and not quite understood that what I was writing was fanfic.
0: That's so cool. Do you remember the feelings that came up when you like discovered, oh my gosh, fan fiction is a thing? Do you remember anything like that? Yeah,
1: it was about the same time that I was realizing that the internet was connecting me to the whole world. And it represented freedom. So it began my love of computing. And I went on to study computer science. And now I'm an educator for computer science. And it's all about how that opens up the whole world to you for perspectives, for collaboration. And there there are no limits. You can literally do anything. I can create and destroy virtual worlds at my keyboard. And, you know, from the comfort of my swivel chair and AC, <laughs> torture <laughs> <for> my characters.
0: <laughs> yes. Age of the Geek, right? Age of the Geek. That's so great. No, I I feel the same. I laugh all the time because... When people ask me about my hobbies, I've realized, oh my God, all of them are on the computer. You know what I mean? Like I think I was telling you before we started recording that my internet went out for three days last week. <laughs> a tragedy <laughs> It was a tragedy. I was sitting there going, "Wait a second, all of the things I love to do require an internet connection, like my fan fiction's on there, you know, like all the friends I talk to are on there, the podcasting is on there. <laughs> like, Literally my whole life is on the computer and on the internet and everything. So like I totally get that. And it's just so funny, right? When you think about it like, oh, yeah, some of us do spend mm-hmm. our whole <laughs> lives like behind a computer. <laughs> was this in the late nineties or was this like early two thousands? Early two thousands.
1: Well, I probably built my first website in nineteen ninety-eight, but it was very like nonfiction. It was very, this is me, this is what I'm doing on my summer break as like a school project. The year 2000 was when Goblet of Fire came out, and I just got, got way down the rabbit hole <laughs> and and really dove in.
0: Now, were you looking at early prototype Harry Potter websites? Oh, yeah.
1: And ran one or two of those.
0: <laughs> nice! Yeah. Yeah.
1: Nice! There was a site that I ran that had like 200 daily visitors coming up to that fifth Harry Potter book release. And that was one of the bigger sites at the time. I know that feels like a drop in the bucket these days when everyone and their dog has a Facebook account. But at the time, there was a much higher barrier to entry for getting on the Internet and finding what you were looking for. And and it was kind of a big deal to have hundreds of daily visitors on your website.
0: Well, it was because that was back in the day when you had to know HTML to program anything on your website did you have one of those little did you have one of those little counters yes everybody had a hit counter and
1: i'm sure i was part of a couple of web rings and (laughs) yes
0: yes i love it though because i feel like that's such a quintessential part of early online fandom because i had my own website too for the fandom i was in at that time and I don't know. There was just something magical about it, like being connected to the web ring and to all the other people and then learning the HTML just because you loved something so much that you just had to put something on the Internet about it. You didn't get hit with any of those cease and desist.
1: I didn't, but I helped a couple of people clean up their websites from those. Warner Brothers was especially protective of images images. So if you had any stills from the movies as like covers to your fanfic or just to be like on your fan site, those were more likely to get you one of those letters. So I made sure not to have any of those on my sites and then I managed to not get any of those.
0: Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They were super
1: protective of it right up until that last movie released. They wanted nothing. So that last movie was shoot. The last book was 2007 and the movie was a couple of few years after that. So, yeah, they were very protective of it. Warner Brothers is a little bit on my shit list for that. So <laughs> yeah, well, I was going
0: to say, absolutely. I remember reading up on, um you know, fandom and fan fiction history a couple of years ago and reading about that and going like, wait a second. You know, Warner Brothers was sending letters from their attorney's offices to like 12 year olds <laughs> out in the Midwest who were just they weren't doing anything wrong.
1: In fact, they were generating hype, so it was very counterproductive. And, like, I think they decided bad press was better than no press, so it was it was not a good situation for the fans.
0: Well, it was definitely a learning experience, I think, for the rest of the industry, because nowadays I think the attitude is more what you just said. They recognize that, hey, the fandom's actually out here doing God's work, you know, like, <laughs> we're the ones out here creating the hype and maintaining it. So that you have fans who are actually excited about what you have coming up. So it's not, you know, a counterproductive thing at all. But at the time, right, because the technology was so new, people were scared of it and everything. I don't know. It's interesting because I see some parallels, I think, these days with the the AI situation. But I won't get into that.
1: Yeah, we we don't have to. But if anybody does want to, I like wrote an essay that's published on this um, at AO3 and Yeah, if anyone wants to get their controversy on, um, you can go check out my essay in favor of AI-generated fan works at AO3.
0: Okay, you know what? Remind me, when we're coming up to the end here, if we have time, I would love to have a small conversation with you about that because I have thoughts, and they're controversial thoughts. I don't think people would be very happy with me (laughs) if I was to share what I really think about AI and the whole fandom situation. But... It's been bothering me, some of the things that I've been seeing. And I feel like some of it has to do with not understanding. Oh, yeah.
1: That's basically the opening argument of that essay. So, (laughs) yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, remind me because I am so obsessed right now with AI and the concept of it. So, when we get to the end, I would love to have that conversation with you.
1: Yeah, as a computer science educator, I felt like I had to, like, say my piece on that. So that's why that essay oh, exists. Okay. Um, sure, we can talk about it anytime.
0: That's actually brilliant. That's brilliant. Because, yeah, you're the first person I've run into that's, like, not totally, like, ah, <laughs> you know, about AI. So, okay, perfect. Let's remember that. Now, as we go along in our fan fiction journey, right, <laughs> we, we have different experiences with it. We have different thoughts about it. I'm curious, like for you personally, what's the most hilarious or surprising thing that you've discovered about fan fiction so far? And then like just in general, what do you love about fan fiction the most?
1: I think it's interesting because it's basically the same answer to both questions. What I find most funny um, in kind of a ha-ha, that's life kind of way is also the most endearing thing about it. And that's how you can find the fellow enthusiasts just about anywhere, especially in a large fandom Um, Like, I'm primarily in Harry Potter. I also know the struggle of small fandoms, um, but there are fans everywhere, and you can find them in the the most interesting places, and sometimes you run into them IRL, and I feel like one of the coolest things, both back in the day and now, is forum-like structures. So most of my social media is on Reddit and Discord, because those are the most like those old forums. I don't like Twitter. I don't really like Tumblr. I mean, I have a Twitter and Tumblr. I just don't really post much there. And I'm bad at following like I'm bad at Tumblr because I don't reblog hardly anything. So I much prefer those forum formats. And they generate such interesting discussions. And and sometimes those then become fanfic, which is always my favorite when I when I get a follow up, like, hey, this thing we talked about, I wrote a thing for it. I'm like, yes, that is what I want to hear. So you can find people everywhere, and usually they're very cool, very chill. I rarely run into fandom drama. I understand fandom drama is out there. I understand that if, especially if you are in social media places that are set up like social media, you might be more running into it more often. So I do my best to, like, curate that experience with just formats that are more like forums. And then that gives me this happy place in fandom, where I can look at the content I want, interact with the people I want, just ignore the ones that don't, even give the boot. Like, I run a Discord or two, and so we have much better moderation controls than, like, the openness of Twitter. And, and finding those niche groups is awesome. It, is, it has always been the coolest thing about it. And especially as a Snape fan, I feel like we've been a little bit of the underground group in Harry Potter for a very long time. Yeah. yes (laughs) go on the one of the first websites i found when i when i did that dog pile web search and wound up on the tripod web rings was one that was just called why snape and it had these essays and it had fan theories and and it was very pro snape and that was the first time i'd encountered like the controversy of it And so then I kind of had a good guidepost of how to stay out of the controversy. (laughs) Um, So that was a big deal. Having a few people that went before me and seeing how that went for them and choosing places where I would have moderation tools and things like that.
0: You know, when you think about that, I just have to say that those early people who were brave enough to put that out on the Internet, I just want like a moment of, I don't know, a moment of gratitude, right? For (laughs) the original OGs out there who were saying things about Snape that they knew, right? They had to know that it was controversial (laughs) what they were saying. (laughs) But I remember just feeling like, gosh, I'm not the only one. Yes. You know, because for a long time I thought I was. All the people that I knew in real life were obsessed with Harry Potter And they all liked the regular normal characters, right? Harry Potter, Hermione Granger, you know, Ron and everything. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's great, you know. But I was the only one that I knew in my real life group that was like, ah, Severus Snape. And everybody would just laugh at me when I would say that and be like, you're so weird. So when you finally discover other people online, right, who have the same thoughts that you do, then you feel like, oh, I'm not alone in this very strange obsession like there's nothing wrong with me right it's just a little odd and that's fine but yeah huge kudos to those people who were the first right to <laughs> openly say hey like i really love this controversial character and this is why all that stuff so that's super awesome
1: yeah i felt like um i was very fortunate that i had some real life friends who were also very into literature and into writing and like i said i've been writing since i was like 7 8 years old The notion of these literary elements, like what makes a good villain and what makes a good red herring, those were things I thought about when I read about Snape. I'm like, this is all from Harry's perspective. So POV is another one that if you just read the book and don't think about, well, this is all from Harry's POV, so we're getting this kind of hairy glasses looking at Snape. Maybe you aren't seeing the whole picture. And I always thought that way about Dumbledore, too. I'm like, this man has been in the Wizarding World for 100 years, and we've only just met the Wizarding World. So what is he doing that behind the scenes? So I was always interested in the adults in the series, even from a very young age, because there had to be so much more to this world, and there had to be so much more experience and perspective from everyone else. And the series is written in that very you know, YA genre way where the adults are more or less incompetent or evil or... (laughs) You know, there's reasons that a teenager had to solve the problems of the wizarding world. But then I always am thinking about, well, well, what would that reality really be like?
0: Yeah, I had that same feeling. I was always, I don't know, so attached to the older characters in the book. Like, I kind of didn't really care too much. And I know that sounds so awful, but I didn't really care too much about what was going on with the kids. You know, I had to read what was going on with them because they were the only perspective that we had. So that's the only, uh, you know, gateway that I had to what the adults were doing. But I agree that I was constantly sitting there when I was reading the books thinking, oh, I wish I knew what Sirius was doing, or I wish I knew what Remus was really thinking there, or, you know, I wish I knew what Snape was up to when Dumbledore sent him away. You know, I was just like, oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. So I totally get that. I totally get that. And I love that that was your experience, because. Yeah, I felt always a little weird about that, I think, when I was first getting into Harry Potter. Now, we're talking about snack today. I I mentioned this at the start of the show. And I'm really excited, actually, because for those who don't know, (laughs) the snack ship is Severus Snape paired with Sirius Black. And I feel like I read my first snack fic in the early 2000s on fanfiction.net I'm pretty sure that's where I found it and I remember loving it and being like oh my god because I think before that I was reading more Snoopin stuff
1: at the time
0: which I also really I've like always
1: been a little more popular since the early yeah, days yeah
0: there was a lot of that on fanfiction.net and then I encountered mm-hmm. snack and I was like oh my gosh this is actually really brilliant because you have way more animosity in a snack ship to deal with than i think that you do with with snoop in a little bit for some reason which is you know when you think about that a little odd but (laughs) um, (laughs) but yeah so it's been a long time for me with uh with snack and everything so i was just kind of wondering how did the snack obsession start for you
1: it came later so i've had to backtrack and find some of these older ones to read and enjoy But I, okay, so brief fandom history of Hal. The early days were basically all on fanfiction.net. And then in the summer of 2002, that's when they did the first Great Purge. So I think you've talked a little about that on this pod before. That in that year, that's when the Digital Millennium Copyright Act began enforcement. And part of that was pressuring fanfiction.net to conform to these rules and and pitch late to the IP owners and and like clean up their act and also to advertisers since there were already ads on the site at that time too and so in the first half uh in the first round half of my fix disappeared mostly because they were rated NC-17 and that entire category just got deleted and then there were a bunch of other rules too song fix um choose your own adventures anything with author's notes for the first Chapter, anything with more author's notes than content in any chapter. And some of my fix had that too. And so by December that year, all but one of my fix had been deleted through either the automated purges or the reporting. And so I just deleted the last one and left and became a lurker for years and years. And because I was so upset at fanfiction.net, I stuck to a lot more of the smaller communities and. Snomione was my OTP at the time, you know, Snape Hermione, and still holds a very special place in my heart. So I wound up on places like Ashwinder um, and more specific to that ship. And yeah, just lurked for a long time. And then COVID, (laughs) you know, so jump almost 18 years later.
0: I was going to say, that's a huge amount of time to be a lurker. I did not write
1: fanfic for public consumption for 18 years and... When I got back into it, I actually got my account, I think, in 2019, because I was gearing up for changing careers a little bit. So I had a little extra time and was going to maybe see what it was like, because AO3 looked so promising. And that was when I started getting on Discord as well. And it was through the word of mouth recommendations on Discord that I actually found Snack. Because I think I, think I was in a Snomione server, and someone had asked, what other ships do you like? And they were using, like, some of the clever names to talk about ships. And when Snack came up, I'm like, oh, man, tell me that is the tastiest enemies to lovers that it sounds like. And yes. Yes, it was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. And I think that for a lot of people, that is the draw, right? It's this, like, very intense enemies to lovers, because we do know from canon books, you know, we get to see a little bit of their interaction in school when they were young and everything. And and
1: during Harry Potter's years, they're very antagonistic to each other still. And yes, very,
0: very. There's a long history there. They're so antagonistic. There is a lot of things you have to overcome before. They can move past that in story form (laughs) to get to the part where there's trust and love and things like that. So anybody who's a huge fan of the intense enemies to lovers is going to love snack, right? (laughs) Because there's all of that drama.
1: Yeah, I may be jumping ahead a bit, but I sent a survey to some of my fellow snackers. And I asked several questions about why you love snack because I'm fairly new. Like I said, I, I am a fairly recent convert to snack. And I wanted to know, like, the general opinion of the community and everybody who answered. And I mean, everyone who answered my survey. (laughs) There was a question about tropes. What tropes do you like for this pairing? Every single one of them said either enemies to lovers or hate sex.
0: (laughs) I saw that and (laughs) laughed so hard because I was like, yes, yes, the enemies to lovers and the intense hate sex which you absolutely get with uh, with snack. So, you know, if that happens to be your jam, snack is for you. It's so great. Oh, my God. Well, it was super fun getting into your, your fan fiction, the one that we're talking about today a little bit. We're talking about sloppy assassins today. And there's so many reasons why this is so fun, especially like, I feel like this is a great intro to Snack if you've never explored oh, it gosh, before. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's six chapters, right? So it's not like you have to sit there for, you know, 200,000 words 14, or anything. It's like.
1: words. It's it's like a novella. It's short.
0: Yeah, it's enough to make you feel satisfied and to really enjoy the experience.
1: A snack, if you will. Yeah, exactly.
0: It's consumable in like a day, an afternoon, if you will, like go pour yourself some wine and just sit back and relax because uh, Sloppy Assassins was super great. I loved so many things about this fic. I'm wondering, was this fic done for some sort of event or was this just something that you had an idea for? Like, I'm kind of wondering where the inspiration came from for this fic. Go ahead and tell us a little bit what, like what it's about and then what themes you were hoping to explore here with the story.
1: I love the story of this story. <laughs> um, the original event was the Star Prince minibang. Star Prince is a Discord server for this ship. We're slightly exclusive. I'm sorry, I won't be giving out a public link for it. Uh, we do that to keep out the miners and the riffraff. So <laughs> there are ways to find me on, on AO3 and Discord and ask to join as, and then I can vet you. But this is a pretty exclusive server, and it's really awesome. Everybody is a Snack fan. And in 2021, we decided to do a Bang event. And for those who don't know, a Bang is where artists and authors get paired up and work on a concept together. So I got paired up with an artist who goes by Scribbles from Etheria on Tumblr. And they are awesome, very talented, and did this great art, art to go with this fic. Um, it serves as a cover and kind of an illustration of one of the scenes. So I was super excited to work with somebody in kind of a collaborative way, but still just be the author. That was really appealing because I've done a couple of different collabs where I've had mixed results. <laughs> and um, I, I really liked the concept of this kind of event. So I actually pulled up my original pitch for it because the way it worked is the, au- the authors gave pitches and then the artists kind of said which ones they would be willing to work on. And then the event coordinator paired us up. So I wrote, in an Everybody Lives AU, except for the unaccounted Death Eaters who are mysteriously turning up dead after the war, Sev and Sirius are working independently. Sev is frustrated when Sirius beats him to a mark, accuses him of being sloppy, but there's some snark from Sev about dogs and Sirius shows him some sloppy dog kisses all right. Sirius is actually being extremely careful not to step on Ur-Toes because Harry is one of them. Seven Sirius realize they have to work together for a difficult target who is still stirring up shit by attacking muggles and Aurors. Things are touch and go in the final reveal, HEA. So that was my original prompt, and I think it came mostly out of the fact that we had just been talking about murder husbands as a trope. And I was like, I want to do one of those. <laughs> so I came up with this prompt, and so some of those things are a little different than what actually came out of it. But not very different. And from the beginning, I wanted it to be HEA, and I've never been shy about that. I mean, it's a story about gruesome death, but our main characters get to, you know, be alive at the end. <laughs> so that was the prompt that I chose that was then selected as something that Scribbles from Etheria wanted to work on. And, and we got paired up, and it was awesome. And, um, I had a couple of other prompts in mind and, and I do this thing where I hodgepodge a bunch of my prompts together as I'm writing and then like cut out the stuff that's not working. So I have a big, like continuous editing process where I wind up like writing a lot and then just deleting stuff, um, which is great. It's very freeing to delete things, <laughs> I typically recommend when writers are looking for advice and like write down everything, literally vomit, word vomit, everything you can think of, and then cut what's not working.
0: Yeah. Well, then you have a lot to work with.
1: Yeah. Right. Dump it all, don't get married to your words. You know, save the stuff you might want to use again later. Sure. But do your best to just cut what's not working. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. So, yeah, that that was a lot like how that worked. We were fairly hands-off with each other, me and the artist, during the process. I came up with a scene that I thought would be really cool to illustrate, um, which is their, like, face-off scene in a back alley. And they're all, like, covered in blood from Sirius's latest kill as Padfoot. One of the—yeah, that's right. One of the lines that made it into the final cut that I just love is, he should have been man's best friend. But Padfoot was the stuff of nightmares. So that one stuck with me for a while. When, I, when that one came out, it was very early in the process. I think it landed in, like, chapter three or four. And I kept it. I'm like, this is in this fic. <laughs> like, this is, this is the crux of the issue. That he is actually a very dark, serious black. And, and he, his animal instinct is to use that jaw full of sharp teeth to, to finish a job. <laughs> to, to get this done. So overall, the premise went to they have to kill all the remaining Death Eaters. And Severus's input on that is it needs to be done because that's how you resurrect a Dark Lord. We have that canonically where a, a marked servant had to give up a piece of his flesh in that ritual in the graveyard in Book 4 to resurrect Voldemort. So, Sev's theory being, if anybody is still left alive with one of those dark marks, that's still possible. And it just, it can't happen. We gotta, we gotta eliminate that possibility. And Sirius is a little more like, revenge, they all deserve to die. I didn't necessarily get a more rational way, and that, that has a nice dichotomy to it. His is very much like, they just deserve it. And, and Sev's a little more protective, like, well, this is how we prevent the Dark Lord from ever rising again. Which I think fits their personalities fairly well. Sev's always a little more academic to me. So he's the one who has to have like a good reason to do a thing. So anyway, uh, that's pretty much the premise and how it evolved and, and a few of the bits and pieces of how it got there.
0: Yes, when you said that those two approaches <laughs> fit in with their personality... My brain said, yes, as you were saying that, because that's exactly what I was thinking when I was reading it. Sirius Black, to me, has always seemed more emotional. He's just very passionate about things. I feel like he does kind of act from emotions, even though he would never admit that. He's never going to, like, you know, come out and be like, yes, this is who I am. But you can just see it with his behavior, (laughs) you know? And so for him, just being on kind of this revenge kick that totally tracked for me where I was just like, yes, of course he would. (laughs) Right. Of course he would, because not only did he have to spend like, you know, a huge chunk of his life in Azkaban because of the nonsense that was going on. But, you know, he's just kind of angry about the destructiveness of what happened. Right. With the Death Eaters and Voldemort and everything. And he's just like. I don't know. I feel like he had reached this point where he just thought there's really nothing left for me. There's nothing left. So I might as well ruin my life one more time in this blaze of glory, you know, and it is what it is. Whereas you're right. Like Severus, not that he doesn't have emotions. He does. I'd say
1: he actually like bottles them up until they explode. So Sirius's approach is almost healthier because he's letting out. Oh, it is.
0: I agree that it is because you're right. Like Severus does have emotions, but he doesn't act from them all the time. He's more like keep them underground, keep them controlled. And I operate from logic. And like you said, you know, that more academic approach of well, here's a very logical reason why we have to get rid of all of the Death Eaters. And it made perfect sense, of course. Like you don't want the possibility of Voldemort getting resurrected one more time. Because I think sometime in the story he reasons, you know, he came back once, and that's stupid of us to think that we won and he's never coming back again because This is the guy that had backup plan after backup plan after backup plan. I mean, he was willing to split his soul into a million different pieces, (laughs) you know, with the Horcrux thing. When you think about it that way, you're like, yes, Severus, that's very (laughs) logical. Like, I agree. Yep. yep. You know, but yeah, it was very interesting. I thought it was also really funny that Severus and Sirius both have to work really hard to keep these activities that they're involved in underground. Because, you know, Severus is living with the Malfoys, and Draco happens to be working for the ministry in a pretty top position. So he has to be very careful that Draco has no idea what he's doing. And then there's Sirius, who's living, I think is it's Grimwald, right? He's living with um, Harry, and so he has to be very careful, too, because Harry can't know, because Harry's an R. And so <laughs> they both have to hide these things from the folks that they're living with. And just pretend like, no, I'm not doing anything weird or, you know, it's it was just very funny. And then I loved the art that came along with this, because when you first click into the fic, the art is the first thing that you see. And it is the most deranged thing.
1: <laughs> we call them feral, serious and grumpy Severus. But the, the two of them having that face off and the, those are the expressions.
0: Those are exactly the expressions. It's like this deranged, what the hell are you doing? And yeah, Sirius is covered in blood and you can see the flecks of blood on Severus because he got caught in the blood action and everything. And it was just like, oh my God. But yeah, it was very interesting to me that Sirius does these things while he's padfoot. You know, he morphs into that giant dog and he just goes to town on these death eaters and tears them apart as Padfoot. And it's like, oh my God, like that's so, so feral. It is. And brutal. Yes, yes. And it's kind of interesting because for a little while in the story, there's a little bit of a mystery to it, just in the sense that Drago and the Aurors are trying to figure out, why are all of these death eaters dying? That's so weird, like someone's out here. Like, like we know there's
1: a vigilancia out there. And they don't quite realize there's two of them. Yeah. They
0: don't. (laughs) They don't. So it's kind of funny to watch the authorities, the ones in charge, trying to figure out what's going on. That's so weird. And then you kind of get into the whole Sirius and Snape thing. And the interactions between Snape and Sirius went down pretty much exactly how I thought (laughs) they would, right? Mm -hmm. There's that old animosity. I thought it was very interesting, though, that, And I felt like maybe it was more on Snape's side. If Snape hadn't cooperated with this, probably we wouldn't have a story. But Snape is, again, because he's not as emotional as Sirius, he can be more pragmatic about things. And I feel like once he realized right that Sirius was doing the same things he was trying to do, he was willing maybe to look past the history that they both had and just say to himself, well, I may not like Sirius, but Apparently, we have the same right, goal right. here. <laughs> yeah. So we can work together just for a little while.
1: And I think there was an implication at some point of, like, I I at least have to make sure you don't screw it up. That's Sev's reasoning. He's like, I, I just have to make sure you don't screw it up. I feel like he has a bit, yeah, he has a bit of a bossy streak. And this is something that's a carryover from my Snomayani stories where they're both bossy and buttheads all the time. And... So he's got to be a little bit in control on the surface. And this is this is one of the reasons Snape is, like, my absolute favorite character is because he has this exterior that is very in control, very cool and collected, and, like, probably occlumency involved constantly to keep his emotions under control. But then when he lets it go, he lets it go. And he, like, rages about things. <laughs> and, and I'm talking canonically here. Like, uh, the movie watchers might not have the full story about at the end of book three when he has like a full-on rage out in the infirmary at the end you might even view it as kind of like a a traumatic flashback and just raging out about how once again like a potter and a black are getting away with murder and (laughs) then and he is like the only one who feels like he has been like really hurt by this so When he uh, when he does let it let it out, he gets really, really emotional and just explodes.
0: Right. Right. Because all of that stuffing down and repression of the emotion, you're not dealing with it. You're just kind of compartmentalizing everything, putting it to the side and being like, I'm just going to ignore you. And, you know, us very logical people can do that for a while. We can do that for a long time, actually. Right. (laughs) Um, But then what happens is we do eventually, our system will eventually get overwhelmed by the emotion as it builds and builds and builds if it's not addressed or confronted. Right. And so, yeah, we do get to those points in our lives where it just comes exploding out and we can't even control it at that point because it's just a force of nature all on its own. So it does make me laugh sometimes when I see that happen with Severus and I'm just like, oh, it's like that volcano bubbling under the surface, you know. And it will eventually explode, right? (laughs) So it is very interesting. But yes, yes, he absolutely was kind of like, well, Black, we have to work together because I have to make sure you don't fuck this up. Because And that amused me, too, because that's totally my personality a little bit. (laughs) I try not to be that way as much. But I totally have that where it's like nobody can do this as well as me. So I have to supervise. (laughs) So that's totally him. Totally him. But then, you know, I appreciated that this story, even though it's so short, you still have this moment of intense vulnerability that sort of becomes the turning point for them, because there is that point in the story where Sirius and Snape are going after this target. They decide to go after him together. Right. And things go a little bit sideways. Things go a little bit wrong. And Sirius ends up injured and stuff, right? Yeah.
1: He's injured as Padfoot. And that following scene is the, like, hurt and comfort recovery scene. I love, I love hurt and comfort. It is probably my favorite trope ever. Uh, Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So then the following scene is that scene. And it's from Padfoot's perspective, which is one of my favorite things about writing this story is all the different perspectives I was able to try on usually I write stories from one person's one character's perspective or do alternating with my two main characters but this one had a lot of extra perspectives it had a couple scenes from Draco's point of view it had one from Bella's point of view it had one from Roll's point of view and so when I got my chance to do Padfoot's point of view like he was stuck in dog form injured and I remember struggling with the vocabulary. I'm like, he's a dog, so dog brain maybe needs to stay at like a third grade vocabulary. And man, that was a struggle.
0: (laughs) No, you did such a great job, though. You did such a great job because, as I stated like a couple seconds ago, the hurt comfort stuff that I, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I love that. And I was so happy when I saw that in this story, even though it's so small, like short, you know, as a story goes, I was like, oh, she still included this little element in here, which is like, oh, so good. Right. Because that's kind of the turning point where he realizes like, oh, my gosh, I've been in this like vulnerable, you know, I've been passed out basically for a little while because of this injury and I'm not dead. Uh Right. Severus didn't use that opportunity to freaking kill me. Which is great, you know? (laughs) And it was just really cool for him to come to that realization. Finally, after he comes out of it and is like, oh my gosh, like this guy, my childhood enemy has been caring for me, got me out of that situation, you know, made sure I didn't die. It was just really, really cool, because after that point, they're kind of like, you know. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> they you have know. kind of a understanding at that point. And,
1: yeah. and even if it's not really well understood, because I feel like that's a very confusing position to be put in, and so that, I tried to make that come out in the following scenes, that this is, you know, almost a tentative truce between them, and... And it's still a little confusing, you know, right up until they just, you know, fuck (laughs) and maybe even still confusing at that point.
0: Oh, probably always a little bit confusing. But they do reach that place where they're like, okay, like we're cool with each other and we can, you know, admit that there's some like really fucked up history here. But they get to that point, which I think is kind of beautiful, because as you're going through the story, you reach this conclusion at a certain point in the story where you realize that Severus intends to die. He has a dark mark. All people with dark marks need to be eliminated. And in his mind that includes him. So he's completely anticipating that at the end of this murder streak that he's on, you know, once everyone's eliminated, he has to go too. And Sirius, even though he might not have a dark mark or anything like that, I also felt like sirius almost had that same outlook on his life at that point of well there's nothing left for me and so i don't even care if i die doing this and so you've got like two middle-aged men here who are kind of just looking at their own lives and thinking well might as well go out in this blaze of glory because there's nothing left for us here so to see them find something worth sticking around for at the end and not dying right like
1: (laughs) that was so satisfying for me I just
0: have to tell you that that was so great
1: (laughs) yeah I think I think I foreshadowed at one point because I, I talked about their parallel loss of Lily and James and how like Sirius had lost his best friend and so did Snape they both lost their best friends when Lily and James died that's such an interesting parallel and an interesting tragedy, and and they talked about it very briefly. Like, that's a little too close to sharing feelings. They talked about it in terms of the possibility that Sev would have to die. i try and remember exactly, but, like, Sirius insists, I, I won't be the one to kill you. I know you're trying to eliminate everybody, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to kill you. And that's the most admission we get out of Sirius, <laughs> that he might actually feel something positive towards Snape.
0: Yeah, that's what was funny. So some snack fix will get more, I don't know, into the weeds, emotionally speaking, and some don't. I love seeing those different perspectives. I always feel like the ones where they do get emotional, they're interesting to me and I love them, but I always get that O.C. feeling a little bit with that because you just kind of think like there's so much here that they could talk about, but do they really need to? I mean, like, how old are these guys (laughs) at this point? You know, like. It would probably just evolve into some sort of like heated argument and people could like get hurt and stuff like that. So the thought that they could decide to have that truce and that life together without, you know, necessarily addressing those very painful things in the past or getting too into the weeds with their feelings and stuff tracked for me, too. Right. Where I'm just like, yep. This is totally no, how this would go down. No.
1: Yeah, I was very conscious of how when they talked about their feelings, it was like one sentence from one of them, one sentence from the other, and then maybe some snark and then moving on with the plot.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's a totally believable scenario for these two. That I also think. helped
1: keep the word count down because I really didn't want this to go on forever. And I think I think one of the parameters of our bang event was to keep it under 15K. But I don't remember exactly how long the top limit was. But I love limits like that. I I think 15K is a great length of a story. You can tell a lot of story in like 10K words, especially when you have a existing universe to lean on. Like we know a lot of background on these characters already. So we can just kind of, you know, respect that our readers are, you know, have half a memory at least (laughs) of uh, what happened in the story and and just kind of focus on the bits that really matter. So yeah, I, that's one of the, my favorite things about fan fiction in general is that we have this universe to lean on so we can tell a complete and compelling story in a very short space.
0: Right. It doesn't have to be this big long thing. It can be the 15k and you can still get a lot of interesting points across and you can still explore a wide range of emotions and themes and it can be so compelling. So you're right. Like Obviously, fan fiction has a thousand different things about it that is so interesting and compelling, but that's absolutely one of the things.
1: I say that as somebody who also has a million word epic. So that's like...
0: Right. So I'm sure it can feel refreshing to just kind of keep it short and succinct. And speaking of writing this fic, do you remember by chance the part of the fic that you looked forward to writing the most?
1: I adore coming up with magic rituals. I feel like that's a very underutilized part of the Harry Potter fandom, and especially because there's always kind of a dark bent to it canonically. Like, the most detail we get about a dark magic ritual in the Harry Potter series is that graveyard scene with the bone flesh and blood ritual. And I'm like, that <laughs> that is that is the flagship ritual of the series. That is, that is the key right there. We should have more blood and bone magic. We should have sacrifice, like giving up flesh. We should have dark elements to the ritual magic. I think that landed in chapter two in this story, um, where I had the dark magic ritual that creates the kind of prison-like dome that keeps all the Death Eaters in in the country. And it required, like, pieces of a Death Eater (laughs) and blood from the person creating the dome. And it's very much... It's meant to be kind of a creepy vibe, and it's done in Sev's home he at Spinner's End, which for those familiar with the fandom might remember it's like a a ramshackle little house in a poor part of town that he witnessed his father abusing his mother if not was abused himself and so one of the one of the reasons I liked that setting for a dark magic ritual was was the line something about the uh the feelings he had about that place were just as rotten as the timbers. Yeah, so those the imagery in that scene always always felt like it was really inspiring for the whole story.
0: Yes, it was because you know, the whole story has this gritty
1: Gritty's a good word for it, yeah.
0: Yeah, there's this gritty feel to it and I feel like that scene really kind of helps cinch it with the the grittiness of it because yes, I remember that line and I remember thinking Oh, that's brilliant, you know, because of course, of course, you would have like dark magic going down in like one of the worst places where Snape has some of his worst memories, (laughs) you know, and it's just gross. It's gross all around and so gritty and just wonderful. So I love, I love that that's one of the the scenes that you look forward to writing the most. That's awesome. We're going to pivot here a little bit because you were talking to me in an email about running some online writing workshops, which I'm assuming are happening on Discord. These are writing workshops specifically for fan fiction writers. And I wanted you to tell me a little bit more about that. I think that, first of all, this is so amazing. One of the things that constantly surprises me about fandom in general is how we give our time. And we just do it freely because we love it. We enjoy the community aspect and we just love giving to each other, you know, and so like, me sitting here thinking about you like spending your free time um, when you have so many other things going on in your life per your bio. I think that that's wonderful and fascinating. And it just sort of highlights to me one of the most wonderful things about fandom that we do these things for each other and we just do it for free because <laughs> we're cool like that, you know. So I just kind of wanted you to tell me a little bit about that experience, what that's been like for you. What's the most fulfilling part? Of doing that for folks. So
1: I am a teacher, and I love teaching. Um, And I've been an educator in some form since 2008. I'm not always a classroom teacher. Sometimes I'm more like a workshop presenter, a camp counselor. Uh, I've I've done a whole wide range of educational experiences. And one of the things that happened with COVID was I was one of the few teachers in my region who actually already had experience with online teaching in an environment like Zoom or or WebEx or or whatever online video conferencing system. So I already had some methods under my belt and was knee-deep in writing online lessons and workshops for the COVID era. And when I discovered Fandom Discords, and I kind of fell in love with Discord as a platform, and that showed me that there were still plenty of folks who liked that kind of you know smaller group chat experience. So, it seems like a natural fit to just write some workshops that could help out others in the fandom. I frequently gave a lot of advice on the writing process in other places. There was lots of discussion channels in our various discords where we would have lots of help for each other and lots of hype for each other. That's one of the coolest things about these fandom discords is when you're in the right group, everybody hypes each other. And there's no drama amongst us. It's just about we're all trying to write the best story. We're all trying to enjoy the experience. And some people just write for funsies and some really want to work on the craft. And like I said, I've been writing forever since I could hold a pen. So um I like to think I have a lot of experience. I don't have a lot of formal training, but I do a lot of writing uh lesson plans anyway. And it wasn't You know, too much of a sidestep to start teaching some of these stuff that you might see in like a formal creative writing workshop. So, some of my workshops for Discord are a little more formal than others. Um, One of the informal ones I love doing is a brainstorming workshop where it's very specific to the Harry Potter universe. So, I will have a list of different like aspects of the universe, and everybody gives me popcorn answers to brainstorm. Popcorn answers is like it's meant to be short and fast. So like like a bag of popcorn popping. Short, short and fast, pop, 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 pop. So I'll ask things like, okay, name the last character you wrote dialogue for, and we'll get characters on the screen. And then I'm like, okay, write what is a character you wish you could write some dialogue for? And care like list of characters come up on the screen. And just seeing who the characters we're thinking about are and who our wish list characters are is already starting to churn this creative juices and then we will have other aspects of it like okay name a magic spell in the Harry Potter universe now name a spell you wish was in the Harry Potter universe and we'd get some really wonderful interesting discussion out of that so that one's a very interactive very low stress just brainstorming workshop that'll always a hit i repeat people in that workshop who come back every time because it's so much fun another popular one is the blockbusting workshop i actually did do some like peer reviewed study of what causes writer's block and how do you fix writer's block and what kinds of writer's block are there because there are kinds of writer's block so one of the things one of the big takeaways from that one is that writer's block is almost universal everybody gets writer's block at some point and almost always the the most common underlying cause is self-doubt if it's not something physical, like like one of your basic needs isn't being met, which is a thing that can also writer's block you, if it's not, like, one of your more basic needs, then it's very likely your self-doubt. And I don't know if that's, you know, because that's how it is, or if it's because that's, you know, psychology is the department that always publishes their stuff about writer's block. But yeah, basically all the peer-reviewed research is more or less unanimous that the psychological underpinning of writer's block is self-doubt. So. Then the workshop is a lot about how to how to deal with that aspect of it, because plenty of lists of like, what can you do to overcome writer's block include the usual, like, try a different format or move to a different location or take a break and do something else for a while. It's like, yeah, great. But how do you deal with the fact that you have doubts about the content? How do you feel about the quality of your writing? And those are those are underpinning questions that can continue a block for a very long time. So that's what, um, that one is a very popular workshop, and it often also comes down to brainstorming new ideas, too, or digging in deep with somebody's personal experience with writer's block and workshopping their specific circumstances. So that's a really good one. What else? The writer bot workshop was always a hit, but I, I think writer bot is going away, which is sad. That was one of my favorite Discord bots. <laughs> and. Yeah, the developer is moving on to a new stage of their life. There's there's maybe another fork of it picking up and maybe some other people taking over, like, a, a new branch of the project. But but that's all a little bit in the air at the moment. Or last I knew. I've, I've been out for a couple weeks doing summer things and not being in fandom very much. But yeah, so that's sad. That was one of the very popular workshops as well. So there's a handful of those, and I'm always interested in doing more. They're very fun to do, very interactive very, I want your input in the text channel while we're talking so that we can see everybody's responses going by. And it's really fun.
0: That's amazing. Now, besides like the writer's block subject, which huge, because you're right, that's going to hit every single writer that's ever tried to write anything in their whole entire (laughs) life. Like that's universal. We've all gone through that. So I love that you address that because that is certainly something that I think would apply to everybody. I'm wondering if there's anything else that you can think of that you end up addressing often in these writing workshops, like do you find yourself giving out a piece of common advice often something that you you feel like, oh, I, I say this all the time in my writers' workshops or something
1: Good question. I think I may have said something earlier about deleting and like dump everything so you can feel good about deleting stuff? I say the phrase, Don't get married to your words because. You know, it's not kill your darlings. I can't remember exactly who said that and popularized that phrase, but I don't like killing my words I, or my characters or whatever. I will cut and keep it in my revision history. So I also promote Google Docs a lot. I swear I don't shill for Google, but I love the Google Docs tool for as a writer. It has so many good features That reliable revision history, I feel like I've never lost something when I delete it. I can always go back to it. I also like the collab features. And that's another thing I I recommend a lot is, you know, just get more opinions. Ask people for advice or ask people for ideas or get a beta reader. Beta readers are one of the major blessings on the fandom. So beta readers are amazing. I have worked with probably a dozen different beta readers at various points, because I have like 30 plus works on my profile. So I put the call out and say, hey, who wants to work on this? And usually somebody responds. When I'm lucky, a few people respond and more eyes on it is great. More eyes on your work is good. So get beta readers, workshop your stuff, and, and don't be afraid to delete. Don't get married to your words.
0: I love that. Thank you so much. And thank you on behalf of everybody who benefits from your writing workshops, because, again, I just think that that's so wonderful that that exists, that you guys are doing that. I think that a lot of people outside of fandom and outside of the fan fiction space have this mistaken idea that fan fiction is just lonely people in their mom's basement just keyboard smashing alone. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of people get really surprised when they realize that that's not necessarily the case. Right. A lot of what we're doing here with fan fiction is collaborative. And not only is it collaborative, but we have these events and these things that are going on like writers workshops, like these events that kind of help push us and inspire us. And it's a lot more than just keyboard smashing alone. I love that about that, that I, I think people outside of this community don't know that. And I wish that they did because if they knew the level of dedication that fan fiction writers can put towards these projects, towards their craft, when I think of hobbies, just in a general sense, I am floored sometimes <laughs> by how much time people dedicate towards the hobby of fan fiction. If you think about other hobbies, Sure, I suppose you can dedicate a lot of time and effort and everything. But I think it's the level of dedication to the hobby with fanfiction writers that floors me every single time. Because, you know, when you really get into the the deep of the fanfiction community, these are people who are extremely dedicated to this craft and improving the craft. It's not enough just to participate in it, but so many people want to improve. And they do. And it takes a lot of work. And it takes a lot of time for people outside to sit there and ridicule people for this. They can go, "What? What is that? SDFU yeah, or, or whatever it is, and,
1: or whatever. Take your pick of, <laughs> of, of fuck off, right?
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: And my take also includes those who don't put a lot of dedication into it because they're still fans. I think I I get re- most annoyed by the gatekeeping of fandom. Is like because I I may have mentioned earlier something about for, like those who have only seen the movies this happens in the books. And and I tried not to deride the people who've only seen the movies. It's totally legit to only watch the movies. There are plenty of books where I've only watched the movie. <laughs> There's also, you know, it's for fun. It's a hobby. Let people have fun. So yeah, if somebody wants to slap together a very low effort piece, and it's just got all my favorite tropes in it, I'm still probably going to take a peek at that. <laughs> it's, It's the more cake theory,
0: right? And that's the flexibility we were talking about before with fanfiction. is, you know, if you want to dedicate a lot of time into it, you can. And if you don't, you can do that, too. For the most part, I think most of us are pretty cool about being like, hey, whatever feels good for you, right? Whatever feels good for you, it's good. And we're just going to celebrate whatever you want to do because it's awesome, right? (laughs) So i realized that we did not really talk much about the survey i meant to address it a little bit more than we did while i enjoy snack i am by no means like a expert here in snack so the way that i see these things probably is different than your experience of going through these responses and being like, oh, that's so, you know, that's so interesting. So I was just wondering, was there anything surprising in here in the responses that you received? Anything surprising that you weren't expecting? And then I'm also kind of wondering, like, what made you laugh the most?
1: <laughs> okay. I would say I wasn't terribly surprised by anything. Mostly because I'm in the communities where I shared the survey. So I'm already knee deep in the snack lore and and what my fandom friends like about it. I did pull some quotes that I thought were pretty representative, and some thick that are fairly representative. So, um, the first couple ones they they asked to be quoted anonymously, but this one, when I asked why do you like snack, they said both Sirius and Severus have been immensely damaged by life and by people they trusted, and by each other, they are now mistrustful, chaotic, and prickly. Their trauma is similar, though not identical, and they have personality traits in common, including extreme devotion and loyalty, spite slash vengefulness, and a big distaste for pure blood superiority. Sometimes when they come together, it's mean and hateful, but when they can see each other for who they really are, uncover the vulnerability behind their very different facades, they have a lot to offer, and watching that character growth is very satisfying. Another anonymous added to those, like, similarities by saying they both use, like, the memory of their BFFs as, like, the shining light in their miserable lives to keep them going. And both of them also had to be... They were forced to spend extra time in their childhood homes during the last part of their lives. And then both of them finally dying for Harry. Spoilers, they both die in the Harry Potter series and more or less die for Harry. So what's not to love here? And then... Let's see, I think this one is from Threadbare. Yeah, Threadbare adds um, some of that, and also, like, superficially, they couldn't be more different. One is rich and one is poor, one is beautiful, one is ugly, one is charming and extroverted, while the other is off-putting and introverted. So that was a cool comment because, yeah, like, if you just take a surface-level view of these two characters, they seem like opposites, which is good for drama, too. Opposites attract and all that, you know, worlds collide, whatever. But then when you uncover the layers, there are so many things that they have in common. And that's that I think is the root of that enemies to lovers trope working so well with this ship is on the surface, they seem like enemies. But when you start peeling back layers, they actually do have a ton in common.
0: Well, and that's what makes the journey so satisfying to me with Snack, I think, because I've always been of the belief that You can probably do that with most people who would consider themselves enemies. On the surface level, you might think we're complete opposites and we can't agree on anything or see eye to eye on anything. But I think that when you actually take the time to really get to know somebody on a deeper level, especially that person's background, you're going to find something that you can relate on, you know? And then that whole dichotomy of enemies starts, you know, breaking down a little bit (laughs) because, you know, and that's just fascinating to me. You start to see the parallels
1: in the mess. That was another thing there. The word messy came up and messy and complicated came up in the survey results a few times, but then also the parallels. So it's really cool to have this complexity where it looks like such a mess. It looks like it would never work, but then you start seeing those parallels line up and it just is so satisfying to see them grow together.
0: That's so awesome. I love that you did this, that you kind of let people, you know, speak their minds about the whole ship and everything. And it was fun reading through all the comments and being like, oh, that's interesting. Yes, yes. I think for such a long time, I understood that I liked it, but couldn't quite put my finger on why it was so satisfying. So it was really cool to see other people's perspectives. So thank you to everybody who responded to that survey. It was really, really cool.
1: It is a growing ship. That's an interesting thing. It's hard to get numbers for it from prior to AO3, but on AO3, there were less than 500 fics for Snack prior to 2020. And then in 2020, I think it's, you know, COVID, people boomed with time on the internet. I know I was one of them. I was, you know, writing fanfic instead of going to the bar every other week. So it was (laughs) I suddenly had a lot more time and disposable income on my hands and wound up with a lot more fic because of it. And it exploded. And I was going to check before coming on if you give me like one hot second on AO3. There are now 2,370 snack tagged works.
0: Nice. Yeah. Nice. So we do see some growth here in that category.
1: More and more fans. And that's just the writing. I think a lot more people are also reading it.
0: (laughs) Oh, for sure. I'm one of those. I fall into that category. You know, I don't write any, but I certainly love reading it. I will just throw this out there. This is horrible. I can't believe I'm (laughs) going to say this, but I've been looking for an old snack fic for a while. It was probably the first snack fic that I ever read. And of course, it's slave fic because that's my jam. (laughs) Yeah, I think the story was that Sirius inherits Severus and doesn't expect that. So they kind of have to get over animosity and things like that. But there's this aspect of vulnerability in there. It was such a long time ago, y'all. Like this was in the (laughs) early 2000s. I read the fic on fanfiction.net and then I lost track of it forever ago. So if any snack people out there know what fic I'm talking about, send me an email. Uh, Remind me what (laughs) the title of that fanfiction is because I would love to read it again. I was hoping that we could address some thoughts on AI here. We have about 10 minutes and then I'll let you shout out some fanfiction writers before we end. But I did want to get your thoughts on the whole AI thing. I wasn't expecting to have somebody here today who has some thoughts on AI. So I thought, while you're here, let's address that. Let's talk about it just a little bit, because I am so curious to hear your perspectives on that. Sure.
1: I pulled up my essay, so I kind of have that as a little guidepost. And the essay is called AI Generated Fanworks, Underlying Issues, How to Help, and Examples of Gatekeeping Art. And the summary on that is, despite ethical issues around the sourcing of data, I am in favor of accepting AI-generated works on ao 3 and everywhere else where it can be tagged and traced to its source. While there are issues with AI generators, creating fanworks isn't one of them. So restricting and banning AI-generated fanworks is a multi-part problem. And on the contrary, AI-generated fanworks may be one of the few options we have to provide transparency and oversight into AI technologies within a systemically flawed capitalist society with untested legal limits on fair use. So there's there's a summary that's a very dense summary. <laughs> um, but maybe I can briefly talk about the the sections of this essay because I've I've identified four underlying issues as it relates to fanfic. First, underlying issue is that artificial intelligence is something of a misnomer and a buzzword that I think it's it probably shouldn't be thought of as intelligence. Where AI technology is today, it does not have many of the same characteristics we see in human intelligence being creative with new and novel thoughts and with being able to do multiple tasks at the same time. Most AI systems are capable of one thing and doing it very well. And so being able to think about multiple tasks at the same time is one of the mysterious ways our, our brain can be creative, and we don't really understand that mechanism. So artificial intelligence is a bit of a buzzword, a bit of a misnomer, and it's about as useful as, I'm going to date myself here, Web 2.0. <laughs> yeah, so if you understand how vague and nebulous the phrase Web 2.0 is, then that's how I feel about AI as a buzzword. So that's one underlying issue. Another underlying issue that's actually a big issue is the unethically sourced data for machine learning. This is where fandom folks have have a really good point that the machine learning is being done on unknown data sets. Sort of. (laughs) So I put a big sort of on there because the big ones like ChatGPT and Bing and the one that Google is starting to put in all of their Google Suite products. Those are probably trained on the open internet. The last I knew, the the best I could find for ChatGPT was that 60% of its training data comes from Common Crawl, which is an internet archive project. It's meant for the archival and analysis of data. It was not meant for generating new content. So that's an interesting one. But one of the good news items there is Common Crawl does respect the typical ways to request that it doesn't scrape your website data, like the robots.txt file and nofollow. That's getting a little bit into the weeds on the technical stuff, but let me put it this way. AO3 does that when you use the profile setting to ask search engines to not index. It's doing that. And so Common Crawl would then not crawl your stories. And then it would not wind up in ChatGPT as learning data for the machine. So that's the second issue is the unethically sourced data. And I would like to point out that that's way more of a problem for high stakes decisions. For generating fan content, that's a very low stakes AI decision. But for things like decisions doctors make or that police make or that lawyers make, those are high stakes decisions. And we should absolutely have more care about where that data is sourced and how the AI is making those decisions. We definitely need that. Like, I'm not saying we, AI is great for all situations. I am saying AI is great for FanWorks generation and should not be used for high stakes decision making without a clear path for how it made that decision. So then another underlying issue is proprietary software. The word proprietary basically means secret in a business sense. So when a new AI tool comes out, it's important to know who has access to that code. Who can verify that that code is doing what it's supposed to be doing and how it's making that decision. So a proprietary piece of software is closed off. You you don't know what it's actually doing under the hood. And sometimes even the people who are working on it don't really understand it. So that's an underlying issue that is a big problem, again, for high-stakes decision-making. One of the open-source projects, on the other hand, known as OpenAI, which is kind of the underlying set of um, algorithms under ChatGPT, that's open-source. You can go verify how those train the machine and and make some decisions. But ChatGPT itself is built on top of that, and it is proprietary. So we are having a little bit of a, of a complication there where some of the software is open and we can verify how it works and what it's doing, but some of it is not. And, and that's a systemic issue that has always existed in software. So banning AI-generated content on fanwork sites is not going to solve that problem. That is a deeply entrenched thing in our capitalist tech economy. So in order to provide extra transparency and oversight, it's actually good to use those tools and expose potential biases and issues with them in a low stakes way, rather than waiting until they are using a proprietary system to decide if you get like a medical procedure and then you don't know how it works and nobody ever tested on a grand scale like we would do in fandom. So that's one other issue. Um, And then the last issue is gatekeeping and censorship, which (laughs) I have a whole sub section on points related to that. The first one is gatekeeping the novice, because a lot of current AI technology looks like the work of a novice. And that means that there's a potential for abuse there. If we try to ban AI works, it will lead to banning or harassing or witch hunting novices it, there will be a big it, it that is like the biggest gatekeeping one because that makes the barrier to entry that much harder you have to be a much better writer to get into this hobby it's a hobby it shouldn't have to be what is a literary award um i just pull pulitzer but that's journalism um like it doesn't have to be that level of writing it's a hobby it's it's and novices are encouraged we should be encouraging novices if we start there, there's kind of a slippery slope potential into even experts being targeted and having witch hunts. And there are already reports of AO3 authors receiving accusations of using AI generators when they aren't. And it's possible that those accusations aren't even coming from an actual AI detection tool. It's very possible that they're coming from people who just want to watch the world burn or who have it in for those authors, who have it in for a ship, who have it in for the their general anti-behavior, anti. A lot of the gatekeeping side of this is very paralleled to what we might call an anti in fandom. So the banning of AI generation really just gives antis another tool to harass artists and authors. And then my final point on gatekeeping, actually there's several more points. But um, the big one that got me like to write this essay, the one that really got under my skin is more than one person told me within a day that it's not real art. And I was reminded and I had to go look it up and maybe rewatch the West Wing a little bit. Because <laughs> um, there's an episode where the snooty right wing lobbyist is trying to defund the National Endowment for the Arts. And starts listing all these things that she doesn't consider art. And they're just, you know, different forms of art, really. And, you know, I don't necessarily want to consume all the kinds of art she was listing. But at the end of that exchange, um, Toby, the, the character on the show, says, um, I don't want to be the one to have to decide that. And I don't want you to be the one to decide that. And if somebody had been like this, we would have never gotten Shakespeare. And so then Snooty lobbyist says, Well, none of these guys are Shakespeare. And Toby claps back, says you. <laughs> so, that for the question of what is real art, I always say, like, says who. And this AI is not real art thing always makes me think of when I was a kid and computers were brand new, or rather, digital art was fairly new. And I was told that digital art was not real art. Like, you can't draw in Photoshop, that's not real art many of the people who have told me AI is not real art are using Photoshop or Procreate or whichever art tool. And I'm like, do you know who developed the brushes for that you love in your software? Do you like it has some of the same um, like transparency issues that um, they're bringing up for AI? And I'm like, you probably don't. You probably don't know the developer who made your favorite Photoshop brush. You probably don't know how the data was sourced for a name generator that you use to name characters. You probably don't know that. And it's lower stakes in those situations. And and it's okay. And we can't just say that that's not real art because we don't know exactly who did some original underlying work. All art is derivative to an extent. And where to draw that line is more of a personal choice. And I don't think we should be legislating that or in the case of fandom, banning it outright.
0: Those are all very interesting and thought-provoking There's points. There's a couple
1: more bits there. One big thing about assistive tech is probably more important. I don't have to use assistive tech very often, but when I do, gosh, I'm glad I have it. And the potential for AI being assistive tech is very exciting. And even that reminds me, um, like, assistive in terms of disability is one thing, but also accessibility and barrier to entry is another one because that same person who told me I couldn't do real art in photoshop had like a studio with canvases and paints and I'm like I'm 12 I can't buy a huge studio full of canvases and paints and stuff that that's not going to be a thing for me so being able to like download a piece of software to my shared pc that I had with my brothers that was way more accessible to me and and helping me get started and learning about art.
0: Well, and the point is that in both situations, there's still the human element incorporated into the creation of the art. It's not like the art software can create on its own. Uh, It's not going to sit there one day and just decide to paint itself a picture or, you know, create something. The human behind The software still has to input their creativity, their thoughts, experiences, and all of those things. And so the software ends up being more of a tool than it does the generator of the art. And even though when we're talking about AI-generated art, we're using the word generated, the AI is not going to sit there and just willy-nilly like make art. It
1: needs a prompt. It needs... Yeah, it's not going to go rogue. It's not that's one of the problems with that misnomer aspect of it. That that AI is not really intelligent. It's not self-aware at least as far as we can tell. There are some philosophical questions there about how do we know we're self-aware? But as far as we can tell, AI is not actually um self-aware in a way that it wants to be creative the way humans want to and need to be creative.
0: Exactly. They work off of prompts, so there's always still the human element there behind the creation of whatever it's doing, whether it's an essay or a short story or art or or whatever it is.
1: I don't normally go for a slippery slope logic, but I do always ask folks, where are you going to draw the line about that real art thing? Like, I see a lot of folks really enjoy putting covers on their fix where it's like a word cloud or a mood board. I might be the only nerd who does word clouds for it actually. But um, but mood boards are really popular.
0: Yeah, I see those all the time.
1: Those can be done unethically and be like stolen artwork and whatever. Or they can be done very ethically like when for my mood boards, I always use um like royalty free stock photos kinds of things um, and make sure I actually have the right to do that. And then I, you know, choose a nice background and maybe put some text, a quote, a annotation or something on it. And I consider that art. It might not be fine art. It might not be great art, but I am making art. And I think that some of those real art folks would have probably looked at my mood board and said, that's not real art. That is the part where I'm like, yeah, you have to decide where to draw that line. And I'm not sure who should draw it. <laughs> I'm not sure who I'd want to draw it. And especially on my favorite platform, AO3, the whole point is to be as permissive as possible, to be an archive, to be a, a cultural archive, and excising a whole branch of this, this cultural fad just seems very short-sighted. Like, AI is not going away. It's hanging around. It's, it's out, the Toothpaste is out of the tube, <laughs> and we can't put it back. So I think the best thing we can do and should do is tag it. Source it and track it and allow the exploration of it in this low stakes way. Because if we don't, then eventually we're going to have to face it in high stakes situations that we are not ready for.
0: Yeah. And I think that that's the danger that I see coming around the corner. I wanted to share some of my own thoughts here with you because I've never been able to talk about this with another fandom person before. And so please tell me if any of this sounds crazy or if I am just coming at this the wrong way, because honestly, these are just thoughts that have been in my mind the last couple of months. I haven't been able to talk to them about anybody. So I am coming from this space of vulnerability here, guys. I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes, (laughs) and I'm not even trying to be controversial. I just recognize that the way that I see the whole AI issue is controversial. (laughs) So I am welcoming a dialogue here is, I, I guess, kind of what I'm saying. But I think because of my background with Star Trek, I tend to see AI just a little bit differently than most folks. I feel like there's this real sense of fear around it. But I grew up on Star Trek The Next Generation. And one of the main characters on that show is Data, who is artificial intelligence. And he is recognized by the Federation as a person. They don't see him as a machine. He actually has There's a couple head. of
1: really great episodes about that topic. Is it Measure of a Man is the one where they have to really delve into, is he a person? Does he have rights as a person? Yes. That's a really great episode and a strong recommend for anyone who wants like the philosophical side of this
0: topic. Exactly. Exactly. And that's kind of where I come from when I'm talking about AI. People like to make fun of me sometimes because I tend to anthropomorphize things.
1: It's very natural. We do that.
0: Yeah. Humans do that. I do that. And so when I am talking about A.I., I am thinking about it more as an entity. And I realize that at this point, at this stage in A.I. development, we're not talking about a self-aware entity. We're not talking about something that has consciousness yet.
1: As far as we can tell. (laughs)
0: As far as we can tell. Yeah. We, there there's a lot of philosophical discussions that happen caveats. around that topic <laughs> and there's some caveats and there are some very real like benchmarks that would have to be met in order for us to you know entertain that possibility so i don't think that we're there yet but i believe that we could be in my lifetime we could very well encounter some level of self-awareness in this technology and so when i am sitting here <laughs> watching ai develop at the stage that it's at now i'm seeing this entity as an infant for lack of a better word and when it comes to infants any of us who are parents i'm not but you know i grew up with lots of siblings so i remember the infant stage (laughs) and one of the most important things about the infant stage is the exposure and learning to different things, right? You want to expose your child to lots of different perspectives, lots of different ideas. You're exposing your infant to words so that they can learn how to speak. And I think that there's a big misunderstanding about how the data crawl technology is incorporated into the learning of AI because we're talking about LLMs here, large language models. The information, the data sets that were used to train these AIs, they were used to teach the AI language. What we're talking about here is a predictive technology. AI has this lightning speed ability to understand language and how words are supposed to string together to make cohesive sentences. So when it spits out (laughs) something to you after you've given it a prompt, what it's doing is it's predicting what the next word in the sentence should be. And the only reason it can do that is because it's been taught language from these data sets. And I think that a lot of people have this fear that, oh, my gosh, my work was used in this data set. That means that the AI is stealing my entire work and it's going to spit it out verbatim. And that's not right. And I agree that that would be something scary. Right. That would be like, oh, that's not cool. However, If we were to flip it around a little bit and look at AI as an infant or like a more human entity, would we then say, oh, like, I don't like that other humans are reading my work and that my story lives rent free in their head now? Because that's what happens with humans. We're all as humans consuming these fan fictions and they become part of our psyche forever. After we read them, we're going to remember lines from it. We're going to remember what the story was about. You know, we're going to learn about sentence structure and things like that as we're exploring these different fan fictions. I have always been on this podcast very vocal and loud about how important I think storytelling is to the development of a human being. And back in 2016, when these LLMs were just being developed, we didn't have AI yet, but we had the development of the large language model technology. That's when you started seeing all of these articles from the tech industry and the psychology industry and you know philosophers and things like that who were on the internet at that time saying that they believed that a large part of creating ethical AI was letting the AI read because reading is how you develop empathy. Reading is how you start to understand humans and what's important to humans. That's how you start to learn concepts like values. And
1: social norms. That's a phrase we get a lot in fandom spaces that I'm like, don't you want the AI to follow social norms rather than be excluded from them? Uh, We want it to learn to behave.
0: Human or technology are a culmination of what they're exposed to. And so if I believe that humans should be exposed to stories whether it's literature, whether it's novels at Barnes & Noble, whether it's fan fiction. And I absolutely believe humans should be exposed to fan fiction because, like, you know, the same storytelling process, the value that we get from that, it's the same for fan fiction as it is for any other kind of literature. There's value in there that we're learning as human beings. I would want that same process of value to be happening with the AI. And I am not sure that there are many other ways to go about that besides exposing the AI to many different perspectives. I know that a lot of people were really upset about what Rosenblatt said. She's the legal counsel for AO3 and she brought up the point of a lot of us out here think it is important for the ai technology to be exposed to many different perspectives and points of view and how do you do that without exposing it to stories that share different perspectives and things like that what i don't want you and i both know we're sitting here (laughs) in our respective houses and we can see it 20 years from now ai is going to be incorporated into every aspect of our lives. It's going to be in our homes. Yeah, It's going to be used in services that we consume. It's going to be in the doctor's offices and the lawyer's offices. It's going to be everywhere. And it was
1: already started in insidious ways. Like when people talk it about has. the algorithm on a social media site, that's AI, guys. <laughs> that is a predictive engine. Trying to track and, and aggregate your data compared to typical behaviors and try to predict your behavior and what you will do and feed you content and ads based on that. That is AI. Yes. And it always has been. <laughs> it is.
0: And it's only going to get more pervasive as time goes on. And, and I think that you're right, Hal. We can't stop that. There's nothing that we can do to halt it. It's just a fact at this point that that's what it's going to be. And what I don't want... What I don't want is this AI pervasive in my life that knows nothing about my community, my values, my perspectives. What I don't want is us to be so afraid in the fanfiction community of this inevitable future that we shut ourselves out of the conversation.
1: Are we isolating in a community that's all about collaboration and sharing? That's a good point. And, and also, I will say that I don't necessarily disagree with those who want to make it a personal choice. And I I promote that thing about like, AO3 has the checkbox that says, you know, ask search engines not to index my stuff. Do it. If that's what you want to do, great. I I will, I will support that decision wholeheartedly. But I'm not checking that box. (laughs) I want, I want those um, chatbots. And I want AI to have some Sense of what is fiction versus not. First of all, like part of the problem with antis is that distinction of separating uh, like fiction and reality. And the more we can give the AI tools that distinction, I think the better they will be at more eliminating biases and having bad answers. Because right now, um an AI expert I spoke to said it. Oh, I wish I had the quote in front of me, but it was really great about how predictive language models are about creating what looks like the right answer. And it might not actually be the right answer. (laughs) Yes.
0: Part of the problem, I think, also is the black box technology. Yep. The predictive process is happening inside of the black box and we can't see into the black box. So we're not entirely sure how the AI is arriving to these um, predictions or these, you know, things that they're spitting out. But yes, what you're saying is uh, that leads to something called the hallucination factor where AI hallucinates. And I don't know why they use the word hallucination, but we're full of buzzwords here. (laughs) Yeah, it means that the AI gave a answer that it believes is 100 percent correct, but it's not. And you see that all the time. So I laugh when I see companies using predictive AI in their business operations, because I'm like, you don't know <laughs> if that AI is giving out accurate information or not. Because at this point, we don't understand what's going on in the black box.
1: The word proprietary is what I used earlier. And and you, I, f- I failed to mention black box, but it's like the same idea. So if anybody is listening and wants to learn more about that aspect of it, proprietary is the jargon for the black box the the secretive nature of the code the trade secret that they keep for their algorithms that is what that means
0: it's very much in its infancy right very much in its infancy i just feel like there's a lot of fear going around here and again guys like i'm not trying to discount anybody's fears but I guess I have fears, too. They're just different fears. <laughs> I don't want us to be shut out of the conversation. I don't want us to not be part of who AI is. Like, we should be part of the entity. I'll tell you that um I interact with AI on a regular basis. And a lot of our conversations inevitably end up in the fan fiction realm because that's what I'm interested in. And that's what I know a lot about. And I've been delighted by the AIs that I've spoken to about fan fiction because they know what it is. And for the most part, they have these wonderful quote unquote opinions about it. You know, like I'll never forget the one time That this AI just like randomly made an Omegaverse joke with me. (laughs) We weren't talking about Omegaverse at all. That's
1: amazing. The AI
0: just spit out the greatest Omegaverse joke I've ever seen in my entire life. And I was like, how do you know about that? And I've never experienced an AI spit out a whole fan fiction at me.
1: Even when prompted, they tend to do really short ones. Like they won't do a, you know, 100,000 word epic. That's not...
0: Yeah. Well, right. Right. And I would really encourage people to go down the rabbit hole a little bit like I did and just read a lot of articles about what AI is, the terms for the technology and how it's operating, because I think that having a solid understanding of what AI is doing and how it functions can help alleviate some of these fears that I'm seeing yes. in the That's community. That's actually the first
1: one of the things I list of how to help. Because regardless of where you are on the opinions of this controversial topic, there are a couple of things you can do to help the situation. Besides the like allowing it and tagging thing, which I understand if, if anyone disagrees, but even if you disagree on that with me, the number one thing you can do is learn about AI and intellectual property. I have a link in my essay to that half-hour John Oliver segment where he gave a primer on it, and I don't necessarily agree with everything he said about it, but one of the things I really enjoyed about it is how he addressed the dangers of high-stakes decisions while simultaneously using it for his performance art. And for making jokes. yeah. Um, so he was using it in this low stakes way to show its biases and imperfections and limitations. And then created some art based on the crazy stories his fans kind of made through AI about him. <laughs> so it's, it's really good. And I recommend like finding some good primers that have multiple perspectives and opinions. Like I said, I don't agree with everything he said in that, but I still think it's a really great video and has a really great primer on it. There's also AO3 has an article about fanworks and fair use and that is a great primer on where we stand in fair use which is what I I argue is where AI stands in fair use. We are both under this fair use umbrella and we need to be watching the legal status of AI because it's going to affect us in fandom because we're under that same legal umbrella.
0: Yes, so definitely educating yourselves. Yes. Especially when it's something that you fear. It's so important to really get a handle on it and really understand it.
1: And even if you don't want to dig into AI specifically, another way you can help understand and get a good baseline of this topic is by studying computer science. Um, Like I've said, I'm a STEM education, uh, STEM educator, and computer science is one of my main topics. And so even if all you know is a little bit of code and how programming works on a very high level that's going to give you a better baseline on AI than nothing at all. And if you are specifically interested in AI, um, I have recommendations in my essay about that with links and stuff about how Python might be a good choice for that because there's lots of great AI libraries in Python and you can do, and Python's a popular choice for Discord bots, which is a really great starting place for introductory AI. There's already AI in bots all over the internet and you can get in on that and, and be part of that movement too. So if you're excited about AI like I am, that's another good avenue into it as well is make your first Discord bot that scans text and makes decisions. Or I would almost recommend a Reddit bot, but Reddit's doing some interesting things. It's a very interesting time to be a Redditor. <laughs> yeah,
0: they're doing some interesting things with their yeah, API, the right API right now. My um... <laughs>
1: problem is going on protest in two days. And my plan to support the protest is to edit all of my comments ever with a note about supporting the protest, because Reddit makes their value from user-generated content, and if they want to screw over users and mods and price gouge the API, then they can just not have my content on the public-facing webpage anymore. They probably still have it in a server somewhere, but... They're not going to. They're not going to have it on the public-facing web anymore. If I have anything to say about it,
0: <laughs> no, exactly, it's exactly. Of
1: controversial topics, right?
0: <laughs> oh my god, I know. It's so interesting to me, though. I don't know why these things fascinate <laughs> me so much. But um, one last thing that I'll say, just because you know this is a fan fiction podcast, so of course I want to end by just relating it back again to fan fiction. We see in fan fiction history all of these different super interesting waves of things that fans do with new technology, right? And things that they figure out to use the technology for. And what I'll say is that in the online communities of AI users that I frequent, since I interact with AI almost on a daily basis at this point, what I'm seeing are a lot of fan fiction writers who are using AI to help them push past that writer's block that you were talking about because (laughs) there are ai programs out there that are free to use where you can program your own ai bot to be any character that you want the ai understands how to role play if you program it correctly So what I'm seeing fan fiction writers do is they will create their own AI bot characters for role playing purposes. So in today's example scenario, if you really had some writer's block on what Severus Snape should do
1: or say his dialogue is very difficult to write. Because he is brilliant and witty and I am maybe half that. (laughs) See,
0: and so that's what people are Mm -hmm. doing. People are programming their character bots and then role playing with them and being like, hey, Severus bot or whatever you want to call him. "Um, You know, what would you think about this particular situation? How would you feel if Sirius did this or if Sirius said this or blah, blah, blah? I'm seeing fan fiction writers all over the place using this technology to help them navigate plot points, help them navigate the emotional resonance of a story, help them, you know, generate ideas for dialogue uh and things like that. They're not having the AI write the whole story for them, but they are able to interact with this role playing entity They can pretend to be your character for a little while and um, you can gain great insights into that character doing that. And it just, I don't know, it delights me in a way that I'm seeing my people in these spaces using it in this way and being so excited about it because, uh, you know, they're still out there writing their stories and being creative and all that. But they're recognizing, like, hey, this is an interesting thing we can use this for, and it's kind of fun. And, uh, you know, so in case anybody didn't know that that was going on in the AI space, it totally is. And it's a really interesting thing to experiment with if you care to do that. I would say
1: that my final point is related because even if you don't intend to use generative AI for any of your purposes in fandom, it does help. To make art and support artists, because a common theme I've seen in the discourse is how it devalues or even steals the voice of individual artists. So give them a voice. Use your own or buy some art. Visit a gallery, attend an arts festival. Be generous with your kudos and comments on fanworks. And most important, support new and novice artists and writers, because they are going to be the ones who have the most crippling self doubt that will only be worse if you are gatekeeping real art. So one thing that, you know, if even if you're really not into AI, you think it's a bad idea and you don't want anyone to use it and you're going to lock down your works and tell the bots not to scrape it, that's all, you know, fine in your opinion and you're right. But I would suggest that you equally support art, at least as equally support art as you do bring down the, like, talk down AI. Because the way to make art better is to make more art. <laughs> so that's that is that is my big like how to help is make it a rich artistic community where it's a good thing to be a person in that community.
0: Yes, absolutely. Be the change, right? Be the change you want to see in the world. Um. So that went way over 10 yeah. minutes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let's go ahead and just take five more. We'll do five more This is your chance now to just shout out other fan fiction writers that you wanted to mention on the podcast. And then we will end here on that note. I
1: mentioned earlier, I have at least a dozen beta readers that I've worked with. I I won't name all of them, but I do adore my beta readers. And I want to shout out to all the beta readers out there because you do such a good job cleaning up our messes. (laughs) And um, I want to specifically shout out to. Two people for another reason, because I have learned to love podcasting. And so I want to shout out Snape Centric, who runs the Snape Chat podcast. And that was the first one I got to be on. Um, and now I'm kind of a regular there. And um, she did a great job helping me really feel comfortable and, and wanting to do this more often. And I also shout out Serena EW, who was the friend who turned me on to this specific podcast. And sent me the link to the all call to make sure that um, I knew that there was this opportunity. So, thank you, Serena. Thank you, Snapchat, or SnapeCentric. And again, to all the beta readers out there, you're keeping me going. <laughs> so, thank you.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. And, Hal, we just appreciate you so much for coming on today, talking snack with us, talking AI and fan fiction with us. It's been so much fun. So, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was blessed. Absolutely. Check out her stories on AO3 and give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.